Show respect and affection for your audience. The human personality demands love and it also demands respect. Dr. Norman Vincent Peale said as a prelude to speaking of a professional comedian. Every human being has an inner sense of worth, of importance, of dignity. Wound that and you have lost that person forever. So when you love and respect a person, you build him up and accordingly, he loves and esteems you. At one time, I was on a program with an entertainer. I did not know the man well, but since the meeting, I read that he was having difficulty and I think I know why. I had been sitting beside him quietly for I was about to speak. You aren't nervous, are you? He asked. Why, yes, I replied. I always get a little nervous before I stand up before an audience. I have a profound respect for an audience and the responsibility makes me a bit nervous. Don't you get nervous? No, he said. Why would I? Audiences fall for anything. They are a lot of dopes. I don't agree with you, I said. They are your sovereign judges. I have great respect for audiences. When he read about this man's waning popularity, Dr. Peel was sure the reason lay in an attitude that antagonized others instead of winning them. What an object lesson for all of us who want to impart something to other people. Begin in a friendly way. An atheist once challenged William Paley to disprove his contention that there was no supreme being. Very quietly, Paley took out his watch, opened the case, and said, If I were to tell you that those levers and wheels and springs made themselves and fitted themselves together and started running on their own account, wouldn't you question my intelligence? Of course you would. But look up at the stars. Every one of them has its perfect appointed course and motion. The earth and planets around the sun and the whole group pitching along at more than a million miles a day. Each star is another sun with its own group of worlds, rushing on through space like our own solar system. Yet there are no collisions, no disturbance, no confusion. All quiet, efficient, and controlled. Is it easier to believe that they just happened, or that someone made them so? Suppose he had retorted to his antagonist at the outset. To God? Don't be a silly ass. You don't know what you were talking about. What would have happened? Doubtlessly, a verbal joust, a wordy war, would have ensued as futile as it was fiery. The atheist would have risen with an unholy seal upon him to fight for his opinions with all the fury of a wildcat. Why? Because, as Professor Overstreet has pointed out, they were his opinions, and his precious, indispensable self-esteem would have been threatened. His pride would have been at stake. Since pride is such a fundamentally explosive characteristic of human nature, wouldn't it be the part of wisdom to get a man's pride working for us instead of against us? How? By showing, as Bailey did, that the thing we propose is very similar to something that our opponent already believes. That renders it easier for him to accept than to reject your proposal. That prevents contradictory and opposing ideas from arising in the mind to vitiate what we have said. B. 
Bailey showed delicate appreciation of how the human mind functions. Most men, however, lack this subtle ability to enter the citadel of a man's beliefs arm-in-arm arm with the owner. They erroneously imagine that in order to take the citadel, they must storm it, batter it down by a frontal attack. What happens? The moment hostilities commence, the drawbridge is lifted, the great gates are slammed and bolted, the mailed archers draw their long bows, the battle birds and wounds is on. Such frays always end in a draw, neither has convinced the other of anything. This more sensible method I am advocating is not new, but was used long ago by St. Paul. He employed it in that famous address of his to the Athenians on Mars Hill, employed it with an adroitness and finesse that compels our admiration across 19 centuries. He was a man of finished education, and after his conversion to Christianity, his eloquence made him its leading advocate. One day he arrived at Athens, the most prayerful Athens, an Athens that had passed the summit of its glory and was now on the decline, the Bible says of it at this period. All the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. No radios, no cables, no news dispatches. Those Athenians must have been hard put in those days to catch or scratch up something fresh every afternoon. Then Paul came. Here was something new. They crowded up about him, amused, curious, interested. Taking him to the Areopagus, they said, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. In other words, they invited a speech, and nothing loath, Paul agreed. In fact, that was what he had come for. He probably stood up on a block or stone and, being a bit nervous, as all good speakers are at the very outset, he may have given his hands a dry wash and have cleared his throat before he began. However, he did not altogether approve of the way they had worded their invitation. New doctrines, strange things. That was poison. He must eradicate those ideas. They were fertile ground for the propagating of contradictory and clashing opinions. He did not wish to present his faith as something strange and alien. He wanted to tie it up to, liken it to, something they already believed. That would smother dissenting suggestions. But how? He thought a moment, hit upon a brilliant plan. He began his immortal address. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are very superstitious. Some translations read, Ye are very religious. I think that is better, more accurate. They worshipped many gods. They were very religious. They were proud of it. He complimented them, pleased them. They began to warm toward him. One of the rules of the art of effective speaking is to support a statement by an illustration. He does just that. For, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
That proves, you see, that they were very religious. They were so afraid of sliding one of the deities that they had put up an altar to the unknown god, a sort of blanket insurance policy to provide against all unconscious lights and unintentional oversights. Paul, by mentioning this specific altar, indicated that he was not dealing with inflattery. He showed that his remark was a genuine appreciation born of observation. Now, here comes the consummate brightness of this opening. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. New doctrine? Strange things? Not a bit of it. He was there merely to explain a few truths about a god they were already worshipping without being conscious of it. Likening the things they did not believe, you see, to something they already passionately accepted. Such was his superb technique. He pronounced his doctrine of salvation and resurrection, quoted a few words from one of their own Greek poets, and he was done. Some of his hearers mocked, but others said, We will hear thee again on this matter. Our problem in making a talk to convince or impress others is just this, to plant the idea in their minds and to keep contradicting and opposing ideas from arising. He who is skilled in doing that has power in speaking and influencing others. How? Here is precisely where the rules in my book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, will be helpful. Almost every day of your life, you are talking to people who differ from you on some subject under discussion. Aren't you constantly trying to win people to your way of thinking? At home? In the office? In social situations of all kinds? Is there room for improvement in your methods? How do you begin? By showing Lincoln's tact and Macmillan's? If so, you are a person of rare diplomacy and extraordinary discretion. It is well to remember Woodrow Wilson's words. If you come to me and say, Let us sit down and take counsel together, and if we differ from one another, understand why it is that we differ from one another, just what the points at issue are. We will presently find that we are not so far apart at all. That the points on which we differ are few, and the points on which we agree are many. And that if we only have the patience and the candor and the desire to get together, we will get together.